This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Ladies and gentlemen of Dreamland, welcome. It's a new year. It's a, it's a new show. I am your host, not Whitley Strieber, but Jeremy Vaney. And I'm doing the thing that if anyone has been following me at all, you probably would think I wouldn't do, which is start off the new year right with a book about alien abductions involving hypnosis. Because if anyone... Uh, knows anything about me, it's that I've been sort of speaking out against hypnosis as a memory retrieval tool. Um, but have I found a book and an author that uh, is the exception that proves the rule? <laughs> Maybe. We'll find out together. Um, the book is called, and I'll, I'll have a fancy graphic for it eventually, but uh, The Seventh Dead. Uh, the UFO and the Underworld, a memoir, and the author is Brian Short, and Brian is here with me now. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi. It's good to see you. Uh, this is an interesting book to me, um, and yet when I think about it, it's kind of like, oh, actually what it is is just plain honest. Like... Like the thing that I that that I find interesting is that you're sort of um, it, it seems like you're wondering if you're actually having these experiences or if you're, uh, you know, not making it up, but kind of a wannabe, just kind of imagining things. And maybe you've read too much and you're trying to square peg round hole certain things or not. And it strikes me like that sort of honesty throughout the book, along with the other vulnerabilities that you display is the thing that all abduction books should be about. And in essence, the unknown is what they're all about. It's just some of them claim to know, <laughs> which is basically a lie, right? So uh, the thing that's interesting is on, you're not lying even to yourself and to us. And I'm wondering if you're doing that for uh, a purpose um, beyond like the obvious you want to be honest. Like, are you trying to invoke something a feeling or a state in the reader as they go along um, by being sort of constantly walking the line of like, what is real? What isn't real? Yeah, that's a good question because I don't really know if I set out to evoke a particular experience in the reader, that of questioning, I don't know how successful I would be. So really, the only thing that I can do is be as honest with myself and ultimately with the reader about what I think my experience is or what my experience is, which is highly conditional. I mean, there are only a couple of, of instances where I can say for sure something weird definitely happened. And then there's a lot of things, a lot of other experiences that kind of constellate around those experiences that have the same flavor and whatnot and by flavor i mean it evokes a certain feeling in me there's some kind of odd otherness that seems to vibrate at the same you know to get try and avoid being too new agey about it that vibrates at a sympathetic frequency where i can say oh this thing that i'm feeling now is like that thing that i experienced when i was much younger. So then I kind of constellate these experiences together under the UFO rubric or whatnot. So 
in terms of honesty, that's kind of a, a, a um, how would I put it? It's something that I need to be with myself just in order to survive. Like I can't go very far if I assert something that I'm not all that sure about without saying I'm not all that sure about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And does that answer the question? I'm, it does. I'm going a little roundabout, but I think I'm addressing the issue. Don't go anywhere, non-subscribers. We will be back after these short messages with Brian Short, author of The Seventh Dead. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? In the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us? In you? Unknown country. Join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. Um, so I want to read a little something that uh, it's a take on something that I had sent to you earlier because I, I thought like this is way too heady to just spring on you. But it's sort of my take on what this book is. And if people are wondering like why I'm starting off this way, it's because there's no other way to start. I, I mean, I could start with like, hey, why the name of the title? And I guess we'll get into that. But really, I feel like this book is it's doing something like the architecture of of the way it is crafted or perhaps even the way your life is crafted. Maybe there's no distinguishing is doing something and it's not just doing what the narrative is. So to sit here and say, oh, it's a book about alien abduction or, you know, a, a nut biting your finger or something is like the, the, these things aren't going to do this any justice. So uh, let me just read this because I want to get your take on this. This is what I wrote. Um, this is the memoir of a man making sense of his size strangest experiences. He wonders if he's really having them or is a wannabe in search of meaning and working out his issues with his parents. Brian lives in a liminal headspace that most, if not all, experiencers can relate to. Reading his book puts us right there with him. Structurally, as a whole, then, the book challenges the stability of our shared reality by provoking instability within the individual reader. Brian is constantly calling himself into question in a way many of us have long abandoned for our delusions of permanence in an impermanent world. To learn how to genuinely walk in this world and speak the symbolic language of an energy that speaks to you, through you, and as you, utilizing matter and expectation as its alphabet, is to walk the hidden real ground that underlies the societal agreements we use to collectively ignore how the universe we live in, and are, truly behaves. The Seventh Dead doesn't give instructions on how to do this. It's a straightforward examination of a life lived in this way. Examining such a life, as a reader, has its own effect. Just try and not be moved or influenced by what you read here. Do you think that's too melodramatic, or do you think that's true? Um, I think that's really well articulated, and it's you're right, it is a lot to get my head around. It, but it's typical of the sort of things that you write, which are, you know, packed full of meaning, 
that isn't necessarily obvious at first take. Um, but I mean, as far as it addresses my book, you know, it, it, there's a certain instability in just the person that I am. I mean, in, in my life and, and my experience, experience around UFOs, experience around everything, really, that it's very hard to say I'm certain of these things. I'll try and illustrate and make it make sense. I mean, as far as like my career and relationships and just my general um, relationship to the world at large, the external world at large, it's kind of shaky. And there's been a lot of a lot of um, ups and downs and a lot of disappointments and a lot of things that are just difficult to deal with, you know, and that has put me just by my nature, I think, into this very liminal space. You know, if I was more certain about who I was or how I relate to the world at large, then I would probably be in a more, well, I would be in a more definite kind of space, but I would have a very limited perspective. And so from this perspective of being not quite engaged in three-dimensional reality, I guess, or in the, in the world, I look at it in a certain kind of way, which is highly, you know, highly conditional. And I think I can't really help but communicate that, again, if I'm honest with myself and with the readers, primarily with myself, I can't help but communicate that sense of uncertainty in a way that is destabilizing to anybody who takes it to heart. And that's maybe a good thing. That's maybe not a good thing. I don't really know. And again, I think I'm kind of just talking around the issues. I'm not sure if I'm really addressing your question. When you talk uh, to people about this in your hmm, personal life, <laughs> when you talk about, when you talk about this stuff with pe people in your personal life, do they come back and report after having spoken with you, uh, like creepy stuff happening to them that night or anything like that sort of high strangeness effects sort of rubbing off on them? Generally not. No, but that's, um, it depends on who I talk to. You know, I know a number of people who have, who have had, you know, UFO and likewise experiences and I belong to a group that meets online. And so for people to have experiences or not is kind of par for the course. Uh, when I talk to people just on the, you know, on the day to day, I don't know that it evokes, you know, an experience with them, but it's strange how often I meet people who have had, you know, some kind of experience like this. Okay. I just, uh, I want to read a little bit here and just get your response. Cause I think this, we're sort of building out like what I think this book is about or sort of the, the important, I don't know, contextual bullet points. Um, because again, it's weird. It's interesting. It's a straightforward book, but it's not like any other abduction book that I've ever read. So kudos uh, for, for achieving that because um, I've read a lot and I've written a few. Um, but you say here in page 153, um, since I am at base a dissociative, uh, a mind person who floats at some distance from things, nothing in the world I live in can be quite what it is or only what it is. 
there's always this synaptic gap from the thing uh, from the thing as thing and a certain remoteness from myself. Yeah, so here's what I've got for that. I read that <laughs> and I was wondering, um, is it possible that because you were a loner uh, and an introvert, that the way you felt seen uh, was to be seen by life per se, as opposed to by people. Um, and so you read signs and symbols and sort of what other people would consider to be the background unseen backdrop of their backdrop of their lives. Like the stuff people ignore. Were you reading that because um, you wanted to be seen by life, not by people? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's possible. I think so. Yeah. By life, you mean sort of by spirit, perhaps, or by, I don't know, call it God or something, or or this other thing. Yeah, certainly. That right. Brings to mind. Yeah. And that's actually sort of one of the core questions that I'm that I'm asking myself throughout the book is is this in some way a substitute this being the ufo experience and my what i think my relationship is with this other is this some way a substitute for normal human experience or for normal human relationship and that's maybe not quite what you're asking but that's something that i'm asking myself and that possibility exists that's something that i have to keep in mind well, at the same time, I think that there is definitely an other that's speaking. Now, perhaps I'm a little bit more keyed to the symbolic aspect of things, the potential symbolic meaning of everyday events in a way that most people aren't. And that, to some degree, is what separates me from a more kind of common and shared experience. But at the same time, it does keep me keyed in to this sort of thread of meaning that seems to run throughout things. Um, so that I think that addresses your question. Um, but it is very important to me that there is a thread of meaning there. So that's yeah. both something that keeps me alive and potentially something that I'm using to delude myself. <laughs> Well, it struck me yeah. kind of like, uh, well, I guess much the same way indigenous people um, who live lives balanced between the external and the internal and noise and silence. Um, and maybe because of that, a lot of uh, First Nations peoples around the world don't have as much of an individuated sen I sense of self, um, so much as community and relationship and family. Um and I'm wondering if, you know, like if you grow up in a Western society and but you're sort of functioning that way, do you become you? You know, like you don't have. So in other words, you end up with this sort of undifferentiated sense of I, but the the relationship in the family that you feel isn't actually with your family um, because you find it hard to relate to them because they're solidly who they are and dysfunctional in whatever ways and all of that. Um, so I'm wondering is, you know, part of the confusion, maybe even in your life and my life and experiencers lives, 
the fact that we're not indigenous <laughs> of indigenous mind, the fact that we we don't have any culture to be brought into with this stuff. Um, we don't identify with each other in the healthiest of ways, let's say necessarily. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if you're stuck in that society and you're hesitant to have a fully formed I in the, the, you know, in the self-centered sense, not like, you know, the healthy, we all have to have an adult sense of self. But the unhealthy thing that our society is, like if, if we're struggling against that, is this just what we become? I mean, do we naturally start to look like some sort of uh, mutated version, you know, betwixt and between like First Nations peoples and Western peoples? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And when I don't know that I have any sort of answer for. Um, I think that in our Western society, I'm going to try and speak authoritatively here when I have no authority, but I think that in our Western society, what we're gifted with the opportunity of doing is, is individuated, you know, is, is since we have such an emphasis on the self, the ego, the personality as apart from, you know, the community, that's kind of our, our mission, I guess, is to develop that individuated self, or at least that's something that we're potentially able to do. And oddly enough, I think that we do that partly through, well, partly through differentiation, saying, I am me because I am not you, I am this because I'm not that. We sort of contrast ourselves against our environment, or at least I do. Uh, you know, particularly early on going like, you know, for me, it was, it was, and still is, you know, a very deep insecurity where you're going like, I know I don't fit here in Western society and people doing the things that they do and it all making sense to them. I know that that doesn't make sense to me and I don't quite fit. And so that kind of throws me into a bit of a crisis in figuring out who I am. And in a way, that's kind of a gift. Now, I'm speaking of myself personally, but I think I'm also speaking to some degree about the potential of anybody in the Western you know, world who is faced with this task of, of figuring out who they are. And um, by being not quite in tune with the world around us, me, then that puts me onto a very individual path where it might seem like I don't have an individuated self or really well-defined ego, but that's kind of ironically exactly what I do have, you know? Now, how to put this into, into a context of, of the liminality that I think you're speaking of between a Western, you know, ego self-oriented culture and a more indigenous kind of collective culture. I don't know. That's, you know, that's kind of a cop out maybe, but I don't know. I know that I do feel a certain kind of calling towards that more collective sense of what I imagine indigenous cultures to be. Um, because I'm not a member of one. I didn't grow up with one. I have about as much, say, Native American blood in me as any white person in America does. So I can't really claim any sort of identity that way. But I do feel a calling to 
that more collective and certainly more magical sense that that seems to come from from a more indigenous kind of culture. So I guess in a way with not fitting in Western culture properly, that kind of um, shoves me into a corner or shoves me into an in-between state between worlds. Does that, does that address your question? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, because, you know, it's sort of fashionable now to say that, um, you know, experiencers are shaman, right? They're like, we're the modern day shaman. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. that doesn't quite fit to me, but it's, uh, well, you know, but I, I see what you're talking about. It takes a lot of work. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. First of all, being a shaman is becoming like, a shaman, right? A skill. <laughs> Skill you don't set. just have a vision and go like, I'm a shaman, you know. Right. You, you spend at least a year in the jungle, in the jungle, taking ayahuasca, or you know, thrown off a cliff or whatever. It's not easy, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit glib for I think that a lot of that, that a lot of people, and I I understand the temptation, you know, is to say like, well, I'm shamanic now. And it's like, well, maybe, but you haven't really, you know, gotten the chops for that, and it's not easy to do. But I get, I think I get the um, the impulse to do that because there is a sort of there's there's an otherworldliness. I mean, obviously there's another worldliness to the UFO experience, but there's there's a thing about it that kind of shoves you into a very highly symbolic state of of being. At least that's my experience, and that I think is primarily shamanic. But again, just being kind of put into that space of, of relating with the symbolism and, and the meaning behind them. I don't think that necessarily makes you a shaman, but I can see why it does have that kind of shamanic resonance. Free Dreamlanders, one more quick break, and then we'll be back to finish up with Brian Short, author of The Seventh Dead. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition, very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. This is Whitley Strieber. Listen to me now from June of 2010 talking to Alan Lammers about an incredible thing that happened to him on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. Here you are in South Sulawesi, in the little town in the district of Sandu Batu, you were, what happened? You were told something rather strange. 
Well, we were told before we went, um, like my my friends that I work with in, with the NGO, they told me that when you pack, because it kind of happened by accident, I went out to buy a raincoat. It rains quite a bit in this part of the world. And so I went out and I bought a yellow raincoat. And my friend said, I'm sorry, you can't you can't take that to Walla Walla. And I said, well, why not? And he says, well, it's the, you can't wear that color. So anyways, excuse me. So I thought, okay, well, what colors can I wear? They, they said, well, you can only wear black or white. You cannot wear any bright colors, no bright green, especially no yellow. And, you know, that's all you should bring. And I, and I said, well, what would happen? And they said, well, uh, people disappear. You will find the rest of that story, and it is brain-bending in the June 5th edition of Dreamland, June 5, 2010 edition of Dreamland in the unknowncountry.com archive. This archive is one of the richest of its kind in the world, probably is the richest of its kind in the world, filled with extraordinary shows, of which this show is certainly one, this show with Alan Lammers. You will never have heard anything like it. It does what Dreamland is here to do. It opens your mind to the fact that we live inside a hidden reality that we prefer not to acknowledge, but not here. Here on UnknownCountry.com, we do acknowledge it. We live in it and we love it. Subscribe today. You can't go wrong. Go to UnknownCountry.com right now and get started. When you were writing this, um, you know, because there are some big experiences, but it's a lot of smaller experiences um, that you're really putting a magnifying glass to. And do you differentiate when you're writing what you think is important for the reader as opposed to what was personally important to you? Well, I'm always thinking about that, you know, because as I'm writing, I'm not just writing to myself. I am imagining an audience there. So I want to make things clear as I can for this imagined audience, which hopefully becomes a real audience at some point. But um, it is primarily myself that I'm, you know, in my own experience, my own thoughts, my own doubts, and whatever certainties or, or imaginations that I have, you know, imaginings that I have, that's primarily what I'm, what I'm engaging with. Hmm. As far as, uh, like, I'm trying to think of, it's, it's bucking trends, this book, in a way, uh, of, of like, of the things that we want to say about ourselves often as experiencers, or at least I have felt the urge to, or felt it for me, whether I've said it out loud or not. Like at some point, I certainly felt like I was on a hero's journey. Like at some point, it's like, oh, there's this mythical archetypal hero's journey. This doesn't feel, but, you know, I sort of grew out of that <laughs> eventually, but a lot of people don't. But this doesn't, it seems like you never really thought that at all. Like it seems like you really resisted having any sort of take on it other than just trying to figure out, okay, is this happening and what does it mean that it is? Um, is, is that correct? Or do you mm -hmm. secretly feel like, no, it's, 
there's something about me here that's important and it's for my growth or for learning or whatever, you know, whatever it is we put on that. What do you, what do you secretly feel as opposed to what you've written in the book? <laughs> there's a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, of course, I want to be special. Of course, I want to be important. You know, of course, I want to, you know, see myself as the center of something. Um, but again, it's very important that I be honest with myself and bring things into perspective. Because if I'm not, life has taught me that that um, karma is instant and it'll come back and it'll slap me down. So, um Boy, I just got, speaking of fuzzy karma and, and, and instant slapping down, I just got really fuzzy headed. So I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. Um, <laughs> could you repeat the question or rephrase it? Well, just do you, uh, I mean, have you ever or do you now, like sort of feel like you're on either a hero's journey or a quest of some sort? Are you, is this about your evolution? Is it a learning lesson? If so, what the heck are you okay. learning? Um, yeah. Um, I'm learning how to be a person and I'm learning how to be as wholly the person that I seem to be uh, becoming. Um, yeah, I guess you can frame that as a hero's journey. I don't really find that really appealing because it makes me feel like I'm trying to be too important. Mostly, and this is not an exaggeration or mere rhetoric, it's a matter of survival for me. You know, it's like... I was faced with a crisis at a pretty, pretty early age in that, you know, I seemed to be alcoholic or at least I had a real, you know, serious problem with, with drinking and drugs and, and all that. And I needed to clean up. And the way to do that was to be rigorously honest, as honest with myself as I could be. And I was convinced, you know, from those early days, and I'm still convinced now that if I can't be that honest with myself, then it's going to kill me. You know, maybe not instantly, but sooner or later, the consequences of being dishonest with myself will catch up and they will cause my self-destruction. And that's not really something that I want to do. So the alternative in that case is to grow spiritually. And this is what, you know, my experience in the 12-step groups and with sobriety has taught me is that, spiritual growth, you know, despite what they have to say about it or not say about it, for me, this is true. Spiritual growth is absolutely necessary. It's a, it's a path that I need to stay on, whatever that means. And for me, that spiritual path is indicated in some degree or another by my, you know, liminal UFO experiences or whatnot. They're speaking to a very deep level. They're evoking a very deep level in me. And so that is, um, that's primary. Now, whether this is, you know, can I frame this as a hero's journey? I know people have done so. And I hesitate to use that kind of language for myself because I think that the hero's journey, I mean, you know, studying writing and being a writer and trying to do this well, I've read, you know, various guidebooks about, you know, I've read Joseph Campbell and I, you know, really draw a lot on his work and on Carl Jung's foundational work that he drew from. And now there's, you know, kind of a guidebook, or at least there was 10, 15 years ago about how to write a story. Here's how you're supposed to write a story. It's the hero's journey. 
the hero's journey goes like this. They do this, they do this, they do this, they do this, and then blah, you got the hero's journey and that's how every story needs to be told. And I'm very resistant to that kind of cut and dry, even though it's based on things that are very archetypal and very deeply thematic and, and part of our souls, I think. There's a part of me that just says, like, no, that's not enough. There's there's more to it. I mean, you know, now there's kind of a response that there's like also a heroine's journey. That makes total sense. You know, what's the female perspective on the hero's journey? Because the hero's journey is, even though it's not necessarily male centric, it does kind of come off that way. Yeah. And I think I'm missing a lot of important points trying to talk about, you know, feminist issues, but I'll stop there before I embarrass myself. <laughs> but I think that there's a wider spectrum of, of storytelling that is just as just as endemic to the human condition as the hero's journey is. And so, yeah, I'll just I'll shut up. Now. OK. Yeah. Well, yeah. So part of why I think people often feel they're on a hero's journey or that they're part of some, you know, a character in a story from on high is because uh, of the synchronicities that they have in their lives. And although I don't think you use the word once in the book, which was refreshing, you certainly describe a lot of synchronistic events. And so I guess how important is that to you in trying to figure out whether or not something is coming from outside of you or not? Um, the fact that, that there are synchronistic events that sort of play to something else happening other than your own internal, you know, unconscious stuff. Right. Yeah. And that's actually a really deep question because, you know, a synchronicity certainly has the appearance of an other speaking to me, you, through events in the outer world. Things kind of conglomerate into a meaningful whole that's a causal, you know, that doesn't, you know, you can't say this caused that. And that can very easily lead to a sense of inflation because it seems like, well, I must be very important in that case if the whole world is speaking to me through events that I'm not causing. So there's, you know, that makes me somehow instrumental in the evolution of, of our society. I want, you know, is the temptation to say. So, but where is it really coming from? You know, is it coming from an other? And I, that's certainly how I feel that it's coming through because it's bigger than me. But to what degree is a larger part of myself speaking to myself through these events is, is I think an underlying question is like, to what degree is it really the other? Is it really the larger world or some spiritual world that's speaking through me? that's speaking through these events through through these and um <clears throat> i don't have an answer for that but what does come to mind and i i is an experience around my mother's death this was yeah, about five years ago and in the week or so following that and i described this experience in the book is that um my sister and i were meeting down at our old um her old apartment in the, in the retirement home to try and, you know, go through her things and 
clean up and and basically move her out of out of the assisted living um, community. And on the way down there, I stopped to buy gas at a Seven Eleven store. And how did it work out? It's like oh, now I forget the particular conglomeration of of events, the, the particular like sequence of events. But okay, it was on the. 11th of November of 2017, when my mother actually died. So there's 11, 11, 17. Seems like significant numbers, right? And then I stop at a 7-Eleven. There's that 7-Eleven to buy some gasoline. And what it, what the receipt that I don't check until later tells me is that I bought exactly $11.17. I forget the exact number, but it was like... There's that 11, there's that 7 again. It was like this crazy, crazy, um, you know, mashing together of apparently very significant numbers, all kind of meaning nothing. Now, this was at a point where I was like, you know, it was a point of emotional crisis, you know, the death of my death of her parents and, and having to deal with all the, you know, I was executor of a, her estate, so I had a lot of things to deal with and here we were going to deal with her stuff and so i was really kind of in a you know in an anxious state and then these really significant numbers seem to be you know trying to tell me something but i had to stop and say like what is this leading me towards you know okay there's there's this significance of the numbers and i can go crazy around that you know the 11 11 i don't know what that means Maybe it's important, maybe it's not. I had had the experience years before of dating a woman who saw such numbers as like God, angels. You know, she was so far out into the new age, you know, terminology of things that it was really kind of sickening. You know, try to pay respect to to people's belief without, without trashing them. And at the same time, I do kind of share those beliefs. So I want to, you know, kind of modulate my tone here. It's just that I had an experience with a woman who was so far out and really just so narcissistic that it kind of colored my experience, colored, colored my experience around these sort of significant numbers, 1111. I had baggage where that's concerned. So here I've got this, you know, here I've got this receipt that seems to be saying, oh, 1111, 1111. And I realized that if it has a purpose, what this synchronicity is trying to communicate to me, it's allowing me an offers, opportunity to just completely wrap myself up in crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that there was no significance. I was saying that it seemed to be a little bit deliberately crazy making. And so it was a temptation for me to try and find significance that may not be there in these numbers and in, in, in this experience. And so it was, it was like a warning saying like, you can go crazy with this if you want to. And there was definitely a temptation, but you know, something in me was saying like, just lay off, just deal with things. You have to be cool now and deal with things. Hmm. And, you know, with a little bit of, you know, retrospective, you know, vision in time, I can say like, yeah, there was, maybe some kind of entity, some kind of aspect of mind there that wanted me to spin out and just go nuts, you know? So that's, that's something that, that I think the language of synchronicity 
is capable of doing. You know, so you kind of have to discriminate with who is who's the source of the message here, who's talking. And it's not always to our benefit to follow these things, you know, to to their logical conclusion. Yeah, and I think one yeah, of the I'll stop there. One of the things that convolutes it even more is the very real possibility that whatever this intelligence is is throwing back at you what you are is mirroring you in some way and so if you're going crazy with stuff it sends you crazy and that maybe even answer is a question that i had about um your parents you you talked about them as sort of being there but not there and that's kind of why you thought maybe you were getting into the ufo stuff and the way you talk about it makes it sound as though the ufo stuff is always there for you but it isn't like the ufo stuff actually seems to mirror your parents. And the question is, so is that psychological or is there a phenomenon that's actually being in your life the way your parents were because that's what you're used to? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting observation and not exact, not one that I'd come to myself. Um, so, I mean, I, I, what I was... I think what I was drawing in the book, and I kind of forget some of the things that I said, so I might be wrong about this, but this is my thinking on the subject now, is that because my relationship to my parents was very distant, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't antagonistic necessarily, but there wasn't a lot of, there really wasn't any emotional closeness there. Now I had a safe environment, a safe enough environment that I grew up in, you know, my father made good money, so we didn't ever have to worry about not having a home or not having food to eat or any of those kind of insecurities, but there wasn't an emotional closeness. And so the question that I ask myself about this experience is like, is this providing or seeming to provide, or am I making it provide the sense of emotional and spiritual attachment that I didn't feel growing up? Maybe it is. I think there's more to it than that. But it does seem to be finding a pathway into me through that emotional need, that unfulfilled emotional need. Like that is something that it's able to grab onto, let's say, and find an access point to me through. Hmm. Now, again, the possibility exists that I am simply compensating for things that I feel myself to be lacking. And I'm looking for meaning in this UFO world, this UFO experience that my life hasn't otherwise provided, you know, that my family situation hasn't otherwise provided. Now, is the is the UFO experience itself mirroring back to me the relationship that I had with my parents? Well, you know, perhaps by way of compensation, but there's also that distance because it's not something, you know, the UFO, whatever speaks through it, it's not something that I seem to have a very face-to-face kind of relationship with. You know, like I've seen a couple of UFOs, big deal. I don't remember, at least in a non-hypnotized state, I don't remember ever having encounters with beings. Um, but the sense of an intelligence is kind of suffused through the background of everything. So um, is that the sort of 
is that a compensation for what I'm lacking? Yeah. Um, is it only that? I don't know. I kind of don't think so. But again, it's not for me to say because I just don't have that level of information. I don't have that. I don't have. Now, I, I because I know a number of people who who are in you know who are experiences as well, and I meet with this with this group online, and you know, it used to be we met in person, but we meet now online. There are people that I really have um, that I envy. I envy their level of experience that they say. Last week, I had an experience with a gray being, and this and this and this happened. And I know, given their, I'm thinking of one or two people in particular here who are very well grounded, very intelligent, not fantasy prone. And and so, when they say that they had an experience, that they had an encounter with a gray being or with a with a reptilian or whatever it was that they had, I take them seriously, and I believe that that really happened. And I envy that because I don't have that level of experience that I'm aware of. Now this does kind of mirror the, the family, the family um, dynamic in that, you know, the parents are there, but there's not a, there's not a strong connection to them. Um, Again, I'm getting really diffused in my thoughts. So I'm not sure if I'm straying, too far from what you're from what you were asking. Um, no, I know no, this okay. is this is riffing at this point, but it's what this is. Bring me in here, please. Makes sense. It's jazz, man. It's jazz. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have one more. It's uh, jazz. We're syncopated. <laughs> There's one more thing I wanted to read, and then it will be all jazz from here on out. Um, okay. All right. If, I'm going to read this bit, but it's not a bit. It's long. So bear with me, folks. I'm going to actually have to take off my glasses and reveal that I'm Superman. Um, this is uh, on page 115. Uh, you say, I don't feel like I belong here, yet I am. Uh, yet here I am, without much alternative. And that's okay, insofar as I'm maybe never supposed to feel exactly human, identifying instead with some vague something from an indescribable uh, somewhere else. Okay, sure, that's okay, I guess. My doubts are as present under hypnosis as they are at any other time, and when my therapist asked if there was anything I would want to ask of the beings in the present moment, I said, is this real or am I making it up? It seemed a valid question. In response, I saw one of the vegetable-slash-cactus-slash-insect-gray-green people facing me in my mind's eye. It held a hand over one side of its face, the tips of the upward-pointing fingers just beneath one of its eyes. I had in fact woken that morning with one eye scratchy, uh, red and itching, as if injured or reacting to an allergy. It's not something that usually happens. My first thought on waking was that someone had pulled the eye out while I slept and mucked around with the inside of my head. If that seems a bit extreme, it, has been a really fitful, it had been a really fitful night, which isn't infrequent for me. And though I did finally get to sleep at some point, likely just before dawn, to awaken with my eye like this was just... insulting. I didn't really believe that my eye had been plucked out, etc., but the thought persisted. Now this image of the creature pointing toward its own eye seemed to highlight my fragile state, as if to say, well, we did this to you, didn't we? It was another joke, the punchline being that I would never really know. I just thought that. 
Uh, and this seemed to be the point. I wasn't supposed to be certain, was I? Um, not ever. Not one way, nor another, and not about anything. I could continue toward an extreme of doubt and ultimately discard all of this as obviously fantastical bullshit, or I could let myself slide into credulity to arrive at all sorts of fanciful conclusions. Neither direction was the right one. In fact, they both feel wrong, but it was and is necessary that I give equal valence to each position. That is, a continued ambivalence toward, short of rejection of, these or any other position. Uh, there, this is the path I continue to try and walk, difficult as it is. As if to stress this point, I saw the being turn its head slightly in three-quarter profile. This I took as further nuance to their message. They themselves were in an unspecific state, a state of superposition or deep ambiguity, of many possible conditions at once, but never a single this or that. It was all, none, and everything in between with them, always, and therefore equally impossible that I should remain uncertain. It was and is, however, this deep uncertainty that keeps me searching, a necessary impulse for my own evolution, to never kill the novelty of what this experience has to offer by settling on a single answer, thereby negating all the others, deeply frustrating as that can be. And now I'm Clark Kent again. Um... So, the ambiguous state of superposition <laughs> it sounds all nice and sciencey, but it's also something that a puppet might say, right? Like, right. a puppet uh, is, well, what did I write here? What is a puppet, if not a once solid, fully formed, emotive thing, and a state of potential waiting for intelligence to animate it in ways that follow the rules of its form, including the emotive, its emotive qualities? So my question for you is, do you have a sense whether the entity in that ambiguous state is something like a puppet or an avatar through which an intelligence maneuvers uh, in our world? Um, is, is it the intelligence itself? Is it a thought construct coming from your personal consciousness or that of the universe at large, something else entirely? Is that something that you can speak to or is that too much? No, I think I can speak to that because, again, that's like central to the question that I've been asking myself. It seems to me that this inquiry and, and you know, understand that this was taken in a hypnotic state. And so I was basically approaching this as inquiring of my own unconscious mind rather than inquiring of what is the truth, what is the real memory of what really happened. I think that this entity, this other, is a real thing. And I think that it exists, or at least it speaks through kind of my own core. And by my own core, I mean anybody's own core. You know, our own deepest unconscious, I think, is where we can access and interface with something that is so other that we kind of have to call it alien because we don't recognize it as us. But at the same time, it is us. Like it is other and it is self at the same time. And that's what I mean by, you know, things like quantum superposition. When I use words like that, of course, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a physicist. I don't really know what I'm talking about. But when I talk about being in 
superposition, this both at once, or maybe everything at once. It's like, yes, I'm addressing an other that I take as, I don't know, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, ultra-dimensional, ultra-what? I don't know. Other. It is so other that it causes my whole soul to vibrate and feel overwhelmed and just go like, what is going on? I think my head is going to break. But it's within, it's, it's within my own unconscious. Therefore, it's within anybody's own unconscious. Hmm. The difference is, is that I need to, you know, I'm very interested in finding this. I'm very interested in getting to know the unconscious, my own, because it's the one I've got, and interfacing with this thing that is there. Now, does that mean that it's an alien? Does that mean that it comes from space? Does that mean that it comes from another dimension and that it is definitely something else? Again, I don't know. I don't know anything, really. I know the pain hurts, but that's that's about as much as I do really conclusively know. And that will do it for the non-subscriber portion of the program. Um, please do consider subscribing to unknowncountry.com to hear the rest of this interview. We're going to go in-depth into hypnosis, his hypnotically retrieved material, and what he believes it means, he, what he believes it actually is, if not memory. Perhaps it is memory. Let's find out. If not, either way, get his book, The Seventh Dead. The UFO in the Underworld, a memoir. It's a fascinating read, and it truly is uh, a phase that all authentic experiencers, I believe, go through, where we wonder if every little, every little thing, every little sound we hear, every little light in the sky, every little, little detail um, jumps out at us. And is that the phenomenon, or is that us? Are we creating this, or is it happening to us? Are we making meaning, essentially, out of even the smallest things, or our meaning makers coming into our lives to wake us up to something about ourselves and beyond. That's the central question of this book, The Seventh Dead. And you can check it out and check out his other work, check out his podcast at his website, numinosumradio.com. There will be a link in the description, but it is spelled N-U-M-I-N-O-S. U-M Radio, so that's, again, NumenosumRadio.com. All right, thank you, Brian, for being a guest. Thank you all for listening. Subscribers, sally forth. Everyone else, I'll see you again in a month. Whitley will be back next week. Take care. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.